Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. My favorite holiday of the year is about to happen. June 16th is Bloomsday, the day when James Joyce's novel Ulysses takes place in 1904. The book's famously long and confusing, and at the time, it was considered shockingly sexually explicit. It follows this guy named Leopold Bloom throughout the course of one ordinary day in which he tries to win back his wife. I love the book so much that one year I flew to Dublin and joined hundreds of people as we retraced the main character's steps around the city. I went to Davy Byrne's pub, which is still there, and drank Burgundy and ate Gorgonzola sandwiches. I drank Guinness in, well, a lot of places, as women dressed in early 20th century costumes walked by. I felt what other people must feel at Comic-Con, only I felt much, much smarter. Writing is hard, who's got that kind of time, when you're already busy trying to be Joe Stein, so it turns on a mic. Maybe twiddles a knob, calls a journalist friend who's got an actual job. Auditory, single story, just listen to smart people speak. Conversation filled with information, it's the story of the week. Ten years after he achieved stratospheric, and very unlikely fame, the world's greatest Ulysses scholar disappeared. Jack Hitt went on a quest to find out if he was dead, alive, or insane. Thank you for doing this. I'm a big fan. When did you first read Ulysses? In college. Okay. You know, I took, a, I was a comp lit major, and it, it was at a time when 
if you were a lit major or just kind of anyone interested in writing or reading at the time, you know, you kind of had to select your big book in those days. There was a kind of wonderful pomposity to carrying around your big book in college. Well, okay, I carried around my big book in college. What was it? It was Ulysses. Just very quickly, you know, when when Joyce wrote this book, he wrote it over a period of seven years. He wrote it on scraps of paper. He published parts of it and then edited the parts that had been published and then rewrote them again. So what happens is, is that over time, a lot of editors have argued, well, the, there is this one perfect kind of Ulysses that, that hasn't been published yet. There's all this controversy. Is that what, what's the exact text? Because it, it clearly comes into existence as a kind of hot mess. And this amazing story is about this Ulysses scholar named John Kidd, who was on track to create the definitive edition of the book, but then disappeared. Okay, so before we get to the mystery, actually, can you just read the beginning of your piece? Because it sets it up so well. John Kidd's early life is like a Wes Anderson newsreel of an American upbringing, extraordinary and crackpot, bending towards fabulism. He grew up with a brother of the same name, just without the H. John, J-O-H-N, and John, J-O-N, were the sons of Captain John William Kidd, a naval officer known to the sailors on board as Starbuck. So, I mean, you practically have a, an American mythic figure sort of emerging to become the kind of great Joyce scholar of his time. And he didn't go to college, right? Right. He started, you know, he read Ulysses, I think, in high school and just became uh, obsessed with it. So then he, without going to undergrad, he gets himself in grad school, which is pretty crazy and impressive. Um, right. And he gets his PhD and then goes back to just reading himself, right? He doesn't go on to teach. Right. Okay, so how does he become this famous Ulysses scholar? In the late 80s, it came out that this um, brilliant German scholar, Hans Gobbler, yes. had spent you know most of his professional career going through all of the versions of Ulysses, all the notes and pieces of paper that Joyce had written on, and was going to annotate the whole thing, which I have a copy of. It's three volumes. Um, and show you how he created the one definitive error-free Ulysses. So I, in 1993, when I read Ulysses, I read the Gabler edition. And as far right. as my brain knows, that is the only one I can buy. That is the official Ulysses. It's clear to me that like, this is my only option. Right. And as that was coming out, as it was being published, suddenly the self-taught autodidact Joyce critic, John Kidd, appears in the New York Review of Books. Yeah. Somehow Kidd gets published in the New York Review of Books, and he's critiquing Gobbler's edition of Ulysses, this new edition. But it, it's more than just a critique, right? It's just this scathing attack of Gobbler's methods and of his edits and, and all of the things he was doing. And this is where I come into the story. Okay. I remember I was, I had just joined the staff of Harper's Magazine um, as an editor. And I remember sitting down to read this piece. And it was the most amazing piece of writing for so many reasons. One is it had this cocky sort of kind of like Twitter tone to his criticism, which is something you never saw in the New York Review of Books. He was, he was being flip in, in all kinds of ways. I remember he dismissed the entire Gobbler effort. He said that the, 
the corrected text by Gobbler is, quote, marbled with the fat of such pseudo-restorations from shoulder to shank. You know, he just, he just didn't read sentences like that. Or another time, he was just being playful, where he caught Gobbler at some tiny mistake, and, and he wrote, Irony abounds. What redounds to Dr. Kidd rebounds on several grounds, it sounds. He's out of bounds. So he's just, I mean, he just sounds like this kind of drunk poet, you know, writing in the New York Review of Books. It was impossible not to read. What I love about it is it reads like an onion piece because he is so pissed off about the tiniest, most inconsequential things you can imagine. Correct. Or another one that's famous is the big black dot. You're you're talking about this big black dot that's in some editions of Ulysses. Right. So let me just back up and tell you what this is. So at the at the end of a long chapter that's done in sort of Q&A, it's almost like a legal deposition. It's a parody of kind of like a an inquisitor. It's pretty funny. Right, and it's pretty funny. I mean, it's very specific and it's cracking jokes the whole time. It's supposed to, it may or may not be God himself, you know, sort of quizzing uh, the events of, of June 16th. A very drunk Bloom. Yeah. Right. Bloom uh, being Leopold Bloom, the main character of Ulysses. Right, yes. So... At the very end, I mean, the Inquisitor is getting so uh, annoyed with the answers, you know, ostensibly Bloom's, uh, you know, annoying little answers, that at the end, there's a question and then there's just this big black dot. In the edition I had, it was probably the size of a the head of a nail. So, you know, considerable when you talk about ink on a page. Right. Um, and then in all these other editions, it, it was not there at all, or it was just a regular period or a slightly bigger period. And Gobbler publishes it simply as a period. Kid loses his mind <laughs> in this essay. Because to many readers, right, and, and scholars over time, that big black dot might be the earth as seen from God's perspective. Or it might be um, Bloom's open mouth now that he's kind of fallen asleep. That's what most people assume. That's what ends the chapter is that Bloom has just finally nodded off and is snoring, right? Some people thought it was an egg or a portal to another dimension or Molly Bloom's anus. Yeah, Molly Bloom being Leopold's wife. Right. And so th- there are many interpretations of what that dot is. But the most important thing is is that it's a it's an outsized dot. Yeah. That's what Kid is pointing out. And so that controversy erupted. And so, you know, when you're reading this thing, if, you're, if you've read Joyce, you realize that, of course, on the one hand, none of this matters. But on the other hand, it is a book about how everything tiny does matter. But this New York Review of Books article leads to a rebuttal from Gabler. Yes. And then, of course, Kid has to write back. But then the amount of people who get involved in what seems like a picayune, you know, academic fight is crazy. Like Updike, John Updike gets involved. David Remnick, who's the longtime editor now of The New Yorker, writes an article about it, right? Like, people get sucked into this fight. Oh, absolutely, because it was impossible not to. I closed the door and lit a cigarette I used to smoke in those days and sat back and just went wild reading this thing. I couldn't believe it. And so the next issue, yes, there's a letter from John Updike, who has gotten a hold of Gabler's edition and sees that, like, he has these completely unconventional paragraph indentations, which as far as he's concerned is like putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. And he is just fuming with rage in this letter. You know, <laughs> it was just impossible not to get into the the mood of the thing. Everybody suddenly became these kind of kid-like experts on minutia of Joyce's Ulysses. And the framing of this fight is there's 
a dour academic German versus an upstart American uh, named John Kidd. Like, it's a very clear fight. Almost everybody came to Kidd's side. What happens is essentially John Kidd establishes himself as the most revolutionary, badass, rebel, Joycean critic on the planet. And then because of this controversy, he gets scooped up by Boston University and they give him like a, a bunch of resources to work on his definitive version of Ulysses, right? Oh, money pours in from all kinds of locations. And basically what happens is uh, this guy who didn't go to college gets plucked out of this controversy to Boston University. And he's he has this thing called the James Joyce Research Center, which is an entire suite of offices completely funded for him. Right. So all these other professors of English there are certainly jealous beyond all description. This guy's in his 20s. You know, he hasn't worked his way up from assistant to associate professor to tenured full. No, no. He's just leapfrogged everything and become the world's greatest Joyce scholar with his own research center and a bevy of research assistants out to publish the competition to Gobbler's edition. The real, solid, absolutely pure Joyce's Ulysses. And so in addition to all the money coming into Boston University for him to work on this, he's also got a publishing deal. He's supposed to come out with his version of Ulysses to compete with the Gabbler one. Exactly. So he got like a $350,000 advance. I mean, that's what like best-selling authors got, you know, if they were lucky at the time. And I remember I called him at the time. I was an editor at Harper's. He and I had several conversations. And the hope was that um, at, at that point, the internet was very, very young, but there was this creaky sort of technology known as CD-ROM. And so the idea was that all those books you just held up, the annotated yes. Ulysses and all that, the idea was is that he would, Kid was going to create this electronic version of Ulysses where you could just touch each word and it would give you the whole history of that. And that must exist now, right? Yes, that does exist now. Yeah, you can you can definitely go online now and find versions of this. But, you know, in 1988, 89, 90, when this whole thing was a great idea. Uh, yeah, it was just an incredible idea and was like the perfect use of what was then emerging as the Internet. Oh, you are so excited. I'm sure I'm I'm thrilled. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. I have a life, you know, eventually by 92, I step away from Harper's to write a book. And, you know, I, I forget all about John Kidd. And meanwhile, his book has never come out. Never come out, and you never. I never hear anything more about it. Which is weird, because he had a publishing deal and, right. and a group at BU working on this, and, and the book never comes out. Okay, so then what happens? 10 or 15 years go by, and I'm, I'm up visiting somebody in Boston, and I just happen to pick up the paper, and there's like a, a, an item in the paper uh, about John Kidd and how he's kind of gone insane. Um, he doesn't really teach anymore. He kind of hangs out at the statue uh, near the Boston University campus. He fe he's feeding the pigeons. He's given them names. Uh, he kind of talks to them all day long. And there's this picture of this kind of haunted figure in a long overcoat. And that's all it says, is that, you know, the greatest Joyce scholar has kind of gone mad. When we get back, Jack Hitt decides to find out what happened to the world's greatest Joyce scholar. But first, our advertisers are going to sell you a bar of lemon-scented soap that jumps from one of your pockets to another. That, that's a really solid joke if you've read Ulysses. 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Reporter Jack Hitt couldn't stop thinking about the world-famous Joyce Scholar, who had never gotten back to him about that CD-ROM project. So I read that he had become a kind of homeless person. And then after that, I never read another thing about him. And so I thought, well, what what happened to him? I had read about another Joyce Scholar um, who had lost his mind trying to deal with all the Joyceana. And, you know, Joyce has this famous line where he says, you know, he he expects his work to keep, you know, scholars busy for the next 300 years right. or something, right? So cocky. And, and it's so Joycean. But, you know, part of how I read that was is that, you know, the scholars would all just go crazy trying to figure out what this book actually meant and how it all works. Um, and so he was sort of like this proof of this, that, that a number of scholars seem to have gone off uh, the deep end. And so I called all the professors in the English department, every one of them at BU and said, where is John Kidd? Because I couldn't find an obituary and I couldn't find any leads on the internet as to where he was. And half the 
faculty said, oh, I've heard he's dead. And then I, I, I found some scholars in Europe who would say, you know, affirmatively that he was dead. But there should have been an obit. Somebody would have written an obit if he died, you figured. Exactly. I mean, how could he how could he die even in a home? I even called homeless shelters all around Boston wow. uh, trying to see if he was just living in one, you know, at this point. And how did you figure out he was alive? Well, I talked to this one uh, Finnegan's Wake scholar in Romania. Finnegan's Wake being the even more complicated book yes. that Joyce writes after Ulysses. The book where Joyce actually does go mad and writes a book that almost no one can read. And, for, and forces <laughs> Samuel Beckett, because he's blind at this point, to like... Transcribe it. Dictate letter by letter these made-up words he has. That's right. Okay, so how do you... How do you find out this John Kidd guy's alive? This happens over months and months and years. So um, at one point, someone had mentioned that he was in Central America. And then I, I was reading these defunct blogs. Uh, I don't even know how I got to them. Um, I guess just Googling his, his name and going into the dead zone of the internet, like blogs that had been inactive for 15 years or 10 years. And there was this nudist in Brazil who said that he had gone to some festival and he had run across the world's greatest joy scholar there. Now, you, you just don't describe anybody like that except for maybe John Kidd. <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe he's in Brazil. So it was a nudist festival or he's just a nudist who went no, to no, the no. festival? No, no, no. He was a nudist and mm -hmm. all of his blogs are about nudism. The mention of the Joy Scholar was actually a fully clothed festival, a music <laughs> festival. <laughs> Must be really good music if nudists are willing to put on clothes for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so then I wrote back to the Finnegan's Wake scholar in Romania who said, well, you know, I was trying to get Kid to write the intro to my edition of Finnegan's Wake. And he said he would. And then, you know, he just, he, then he just stopped answering. I just figured he disappeared or maybe died. Uh, and then she gave me the email address that she had last used. And so one Sunday morning, I just wrote a note and said, I'm Jack Hitt. You and I corresponded once, a long time ago, about the CD-ROM version of Ulysses, and I was wondering if we could catch up. You know, it had been 30 years since that correspondence. And first thing Monday morning, I opened up my email, and there's a reply from John Kidd saying, oh, yes, I remember you. And he not only remembered all of our conversations. First, by the way, I didn't even know if it was really him. Mm. But he, he put enough detail of what he remembered of our conversation that I knew it was him. And then at one point I said, you know, you haven't responded to all of these people. People think your email is dead and that you're dead. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm just wondering, it was like, did you respond to my email? Because our names seem to have a kind of Joycean connection. And he wrote back and he was so thrilled that I had made that observation that Jack Hitt and John Kidd are sort of orthographically related. Two names with four letters. Our last names have double letter endings. Iambic names that come at you like two shotgun blasts and, um, and, and might be like an obscenity in some other language, you know? <laughs> um, but he loved it that, uh, and wrote me this long note about how our names are so familiar and, and related. And yes, that was one of the reasons why he responded to my email. Wait, so how do you feel after all this time that you finally found him? I was so thrilled. Like, are you telling your, your family what, what, what's going on? Well, I, I immediately wrote uh, my editor at the New York Times Magazine, 
And, you know, of course, you know, no editor knew this story because this story reaches out over 30 years. So I had to go back and like basically reeducate them about the whole New York, New York Review of Book things and then the homeless thing. And so they send you to find kid in Brazil? Well, I, I asked John if I could come down and talk to him about Ulysses. And he said, sure. If you're in Rio, give me a <laughs> ring. So I called, So when I wrote this pitch, I said, uh, he's in Rio waiting for me. And they were like, okay. Nice. Get a ticket and let's go. When you finally meet him, mm -hmm. does he seem sane? Does he look normal? Does he like, what's your vibe on this guy? Well, I'm six one, and I'd say that John Kidd is easily my height or taller. Okay. At this point, he, had, he still had this sort of blondish white hair, but it was halfway down his back okay. his hair was well into gandalfian territory <laughs> <laughs> does he have the beard too or just the hair no just the hair oh, yeah it was clear that every detail of this fight going all the way back to 19 you know 1980s every textual critique every jot and tittle the big dot all of that stuff was as fresh in his mind as anything there was nothing crazy about him he was just, he was still the textual master of Joyce's Ulysses. I'd be sitting there with my random house or my gabbler, and he would just grab it from me and flip it open and point to the where he was talking about. Oh, he would know the page. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what, does that feel like, oh, this guy's just spent a lot of time on this, or this guy has a different kind of brain? I, totally a different kind of brain. When we went to his house, and his house was just, I mean, uh, almost uh, comical in that you know, every piece of open space was had books on it and you also said i love this that he is still pissed off about that boston globe article about the pigeons exactly he he was furious that they described him as homeless and like you know penniless and living on the streets and he pulls out a bank statement from the year of that boston globe article to show me that he had a running balance of over fifteen thousand dollars in his checking account I mean, he just had that at the ready. Like when we sat down, he just pulled that out of his coat pocket. And why did he say this book never came out? His, his edition of Ulysses. So the, the editor, you know, whom I spoke to, you know, eventually just gave up because so many years had passed and they had not, you know, gotten anything. But they had gotten like an introduction and, and some piece of it. And Kid told me that, you know, parts of it or whatever were sent to the editor and got lost. Got lost? That seems unlikely. Yes, back in the days when everything happened by mail. There is some version of this attempt at this book that did get published. Um, and I went to look for this thing. It had paintings in it by Robert Motherwell, and only 175 of these books were ever published. So this just adds more you know, lore to the publishing history of this book. By the way, I went on Amazon and found one for sale. It cost $25,678. It's an impossible thing to find, but yeah. They're out there. <laughs> and what did kids say he's done since leaving BU? Um, well, he, he, he went through this period of uh, the, the uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, right? Which is this, uh, you know, legendary Asian novel. It's like the classic Chinese novel, but it's, it's very long, right? Super long. Have you ever tried to read that? I have not. I had Me friends neither. in college. That was the book they carried around. And so that, that was, was their another big book. book. That okay. was their big book. And... Um, so apparently he lived in, in China for a long time and became, you know, a redologist. That's what they're actually called, um, who become obsessed with that book. Um, and then eventually one thing led to another and he wound up in Rio. Where he's working on some like 
Portuguese big book, right? Right. So there was this book, you know, uh, a century or so ago um, that was very in, uh, influential in terms of ending slavery uh, oh. in Brazil, which ended shortly after our civil war. And um, but it was sort of like Uncle Tom's cabin to them and it involved this uh, person named Isora. And so he's he's translating uh, what he calls Isora Unbound. And he's still working on Ulysses or interested in Ulysses or? No, I mean, you know, like I said, all every aspect of the the Joycean fight is very much alive in his mind. But um, he's mostly consumed with this translation or adaptation of, of Isora Unbound. Okay, so then you uh, write the amazing story. It comes out. And uh, what's the reaction in general? Well, I was amazed at how many people wanted to rehabilitate him entirely and 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 bring him back into the you know into the fold of academe um and bring out his version of ulysses but that's not going to happen right that's that was or did that happen i don't know how that left off okay you know i i I wrote him and said these people want to contact Mm -hmm. you can i forward them your email and he was like absolutely okay well i found that i'm sure as you have the blog post or some such that he wrote about your piece I haven't I haven't read it, but tell me Wait, what it is. Have says. you not read it? No. Nope. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the New York Times review of Books You. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Now I should double check this now that I know you haven't read it to make sure it really is him, but I'm I'm pretty sure. I can tell you if you start reading. Okay. <clears throat> I have never claimed I was on the quest to perfect Ulysses or to edit a definitive Ulysses or to concoct any perfect edition. New York Times Magazine author Jack Hitt simply made that up, as he seems to have done with several other things attributed to me by him. Or maybe he is an uncredited source that inspired him to romanticize my mundane drudgery as a tropical textologist and translator. Does this sound like him so far? Oh, that's him, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Totally. I even told my editor, I said, of course, you know, the the greatest attack on this piece will be from John Kidd, you know. Maybe you yeah. can convince some of your friends to buy each of us uh, a copy of the Motherwell uh, edition of Ulysses to round out our collections. You know, I bet we can start a DAO, uh, one of those uh, the Web3 DAOs, and get. Uh, we'll buy one. We'll have one in no time. <laughs> yes, yeah, a GoFundMe page. Exactly. That's easier. The lesson of Ulysses, of course, is to be nice to your wife. But the other lesson is that we need to stop banning books. The fact that Ulysses was banned for 10 years in the U.S. for being too sexually explicit is insane. Like, listen to this part that they got upset about. It's nothing. He must have come three or four times with that tremendous big red brute of a thing he has. I thought the vein or whatever the dickens they call it was going to burst through his nose. Oh, come on, guys. It's a classic. It's about to get hot. At the end of the show, what's next for Joel Stein? Maybe he'll take a nap or poke around online. Our show is produced by Joey Fishground, Mo Laborde, and Nisha Venkut. It was edited by Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang, and our executive producer is Catherine Girardot. Our theme song was produced by Jonathan Colton. A special thanks to my voice coach, Vicky Merrick, and my consulting producer, Lauren Zelaznik. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joel Stein, and this is Story of the Week. This is a completely illegal 
a copy of Ulysses. This was published by a pornographer in the 60s. But when you get to the very last few pages, let me see if I can show you this. Um, here's a page with a, a penis, a, a, a Peter meter. Wait, wait, wait. And, you, you uh, threw out the word Peter meter as if that's something that people know. What a, is, that a, is that a ruler? Yeah, it's a, like a ruler to measure your penis. Wait, that was a, um, that, a Peter meter was a popular phrase and thing at some point? Absolutely. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.